0: Jamboree Headquarters out at uh, Richmond, England. And then they took us all out there and they had these uh, little old round tents that uh, you could put about eight men, uh, six or eight men in each tent. And uh, they uh, put us on that uh, along with the other boy scouts uh, all over the world. That's where they all assembled. I know there was a group of Scotch boys that wasn't too far from us because they kept us, uh, they kept the air full of noise with these bagpipes all the time. But we got out to this place and <clears throat> they signed uh uh, Fred and I and Hiram, and I don't know who else was in our tent. But they gave we were going to have cots. We had cots out there. And of course, in, in London, in the, in the, even in June, it's just cold as the devil. And and so they gave us uh, some what we call ticks, uh, some bedding ticks. And it's just big old sacks. And they had a big old uh, 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 stack of straw. And we were supposed to go out and fill our bedding ticks full of this straw. And that'd be our mattress. And then we had blankets or two to cover up with. Well, uh, I'd heard it it's right after the war, and I'd heard these boys from Austin that come back talking about the cooties, which is lice, and and that the uh, the the bed was full of cooties over there. And I figured if I got into that straw pile, well, I'd just get me a whole bunch of cooties, and and I'd have them on me uh, when I was sleeping. So I uh, thought I'd be smart, and I didn't even put any straw in my little ticket. I just used my ticket by itself, which is two layers of, of canvas as my as my mattress. And uh, I'd never known at home. I was too young then. I'd never always had a good mattress. I didn't know you'd get cold from the bottom up. I thought you only got cold from the top down. That's the reason you put cover on. But that's when I learned that a mattress served a real purpose. In other words, it kept you from getting cold from the bottom up. Well, that first night, I liked to fold to death. So I went out and took a chance on getting cooties the next day. I went out and filled my uh, take-up bag full of straw, and I had me a mattress from then on. And so um, I was going to say about this. I know the... Uh, the food, too, they uh, they had tents, sort of a tent that you'd go over and eat, and, and uh, the first meal we had was, it was just old red meat, I don't know what kind it was, of course they didn't have good beef like we have in, in this country, and they didn't prepare it that way. But anyway, I'd heard the boys also from coming back from the war saying that they had a lot of horse meat over there. They'd, kill horses and eat them, and I'm sure they had to do that. That's the only thing they had to eat, but uh, I, I'd look at those old slabs of raw meat, and I knew I'd eaten a piece of horse, and so I didn't eat. I just didn't eat much. And so then there was a time come when, uh, oh, I guess we'd been there a week, and we had our camp in pretty good shape, and Sir Robert baden powell he was the man who had organized the Boy Scouts in England, the first Boy Scouts in the world, and he was there, and he was still living, so he came out to inspect the American camp. Sure us the courtesy of doing that, and he was going to personally go down and look at every tent, and being an army man, he was going to then decide which tent had uh, 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 was the cleanest and the nicest, and, and that, uh, whichever one got first place out of these 300 boy scouts, and uh, you divide that by about six or eight, you see how many tents he's going to inspect. But uh, whichever one of these tents won the first, and Sir Robert Baden-Powell would pick, they're going to get a trip into London that night, and get to go to the Gaiety Theater. They had tickets for the six or eight of us that was in it. We were going to get to ride in in a taxi and, or one of these old uh, horse-drawn vehicles and, and then, uh, carriages, and then we were going to get to go to uh, have supper in, uh, on Piccadilly Circus or Leicester Square, one of those places there. They had a, a restaurant we were going to get to eat in. So uh, the the boys from Austin, we were just determined, by, I guess we going to make a good show in there, not because we wanted to win particularly, but because we wanted to get away from the camp long enough to, to see the see their show. I know the Dolly sisters were playing at the Gady Theater because we won it. Our tent won it. It just upset everybody in the camp because there we were, the Renegades and the 8th Troop, a bunch of Texas boys, and we were supposed to be in the bottom of the barrel, and Sir Robert Baden powell and and I I know we didn't pay him anything, so he come back and looked our tent over two or three times, and finally he pointed his finger at it and said, that's the best one in the camp. Well, we got to make the trip into London that night, and I've already explained what we did, and and it was much to the chagrin of the other uh, boys who uh, knew that they were much better off than we were, so far as discipline and such as that was concerned. But, But we won the prize. I mentioned a while ago about the Scotch uh, contingent being pretty close to the American, and uh, I just never could get over these, uh, most of them are big old tall boys, and uh, they play these bagpipes all day long, and just sound like a bunch of rats to me, but they had a place to wash, they had these open uh, uh, basins, uh, sort of tables, and you'd go pour water in your pans, and, and wash your face and hands. Well, these Scotchmen would get out there in the morning when it was just freezing to us, and they'd strip down to these kilts. They didn't have anything on them. They'd take their shirts off and, and just had these little old kilts on And One of them would lean over with his head down, and other would throw a bucket, uh, one of these pants full of water on his back. It, just, it ought to freeze them to death. But they were used to that, I guess. And I, I just couldn't stand seeing them wash themselves, and that's the way they'd take their baths, With pouring this cold water on their backs early in the morning. And I mentioned a while ago about the uh, contest, about uh, the Hatfield boy that we had in the 8th troop there. It was from Culver that won the the, uh, heavyweight boxing championship for the Boy Scouts and so uh, him being in our troop, when uh, he would box, well, uh, we managed to get off. There'd be uh, nothing else particularly going on at that time and we were not in any contest. So we went down to see this Hatfield boy box a boy from South Africa for the finals. I believe that's what it was. And and so uh, the old boy from South Africa was about uh, three, four, five inches taller than Hatfield. Hatfield was a little chubby sort of fellow, but he was well muscular. And the way Hatfield had boxed, he'd just look at this old boy's belt and uh, not look him in the eye, he'd look at his belt and every now and then he'd pop the, knock the hell out of him with his fist and his and, and, and his gloves, but uh, we got down there on about the second or third row of this uh, arena, and, and uh, just as soon as old Hatfield hit this old boy one good blow, we let out a howl take in after it like we do at our games and our boxing matches in the United States and the first thing you know, here come an, an old boy walking down the aisle with a, a glove of some kind, a pad on the end of a pole, and he'd poke us and tell us we had to be quiet, we weren't supposed to a cheer at that engagement, so it was way, uh, way foreign to anything we had. But anyway, uh, Hatfield, I think, knocked this old boy out. He got him where he'd grow again. But he won. A, he won a little old uh, uh, contest, whatever it was. Uh, they gave him a stick of some kind, carved up. But maybe it's Sir Robert Baden Powell carved. But but that's what Hatfield got. He got the championship and uh, and the heavyweight boxing. Of course, I've already mentioned that we won the mimicking contest of cutting wood and twenty you see, was just two years after the war was over, the World War, and and uh, these uh, English bobbies, the policemen, most of them, of course, had been uh, veterans of the war, and and uh, that was just at the time that the American people were all bragging about America won the war. And, of course, the English had been fighting for four years before we ever got into it, and they they, they took a damn view of the American people coming over there, the American uh, forces, and, and fighting for about a year, and, and then claiming that they won the war. So, uh, uh, they They recognized us as being American Boy Scouts they out by our uniform. we had our little u s a on on our shoulder patch and these uh bobbies, so to speak, they were traffic cops They'd get out in the, out in the middle of the traffic order and when we'd go across the street on several occasions, these cops would say, "Hey, Yank, who won the war?" Well, that was not uh, too good to public relations because we didn't know what they were talking about we We thought we'd done our share, but they took them they had the idea it was overly bragged bra- bragg- bragg- and I guess we were, Americans are pretty much that way. We made several side trips away from London. We went out to see Warwick Castle, which we thought was real beautiful, and then we went to see uh, Shakespeare's home at Stratford-on-the-Avon, uh, Avon, whatever they called it. And then uh, we went out, one other trip uh, was to Windsor, Windsor Castle. And uh, when they took us out to Windsor Castle, well, we uh, got out of the busage right across the street on uh, led up to Winchester Castle, but it's right next to Eaton College. And uh, when they let us out, it must have been just a little before noon because uh, we all had our ponchos because it rained every day there, and we had to carry our ponchos with us to keep dry, and, and uh, we had them on our arms. It wasn't raining at that particular time, but uh, uh, instead of going to over to look at the college or something like that, most of the boys made a run at a candy store. There was a candy store over there on, uh, right close between uh, Eaton College and the and, and the, uh, the castle. We had to go across the river, I think, to get over to the castle. But anyway, uh, we all went in this candy store and it was about, when you can just picture a man and his daughter or maybe two daughters trying to wait on 60, 70 boys beating on the counter with their little uh, pieces of change to get service and buy something. Well, Hiram and I and, and some of the other boys were there waiting and beating on the counter with the others trying to get a piece of candy or something. And uh, Fred Gardner come by and we noticed he had something wrapped up in his poncho. It looked like it's a about four inches thick and about uh, uh, six, eight inches, I mean, uh, about two feet uh, long. And it's a box of some kind. So he punched us and, and nodded for us to come with him. So we went with him, and we went down under the bridge there at the Thames, uh, the Thames River. And uh, he unwrapped his poncho, and there was a, a wooden box full of chocolate bars. Well, uh, we just ate all we could eat, and, and we still had half of it left. So when we uh, got through visiting the castle up there, well, I don't remember many things about that except we—they uh, had guards all over to keep us from toting all the furniture and everything off. Of course, American boys are notorious for for souvenirs. We would just chip off a little piece of rock off it, and I think maybe we all got a little piece of rock off once a of castle—it's one that didn't fall when we left. But we got back to the <coughs> to the camp, and, and uh, I uh, still had that old red meat in my mind. I just wasn't going to eat it at the at the dining place where they was feeding us that red meat. So I made my meals out for the next. A day or two with, with this chocolate bars that old Fred had purloined from this candy store. And uh, every morning we'd have a, a sick bay, they'd call it, an inspection. You'd have to get out and line up, and, and we had, we'd wear our little old shorts, and uh, the, the doctor would come along and look at us, and I noticed a breaking out taking place on my belly, just, above my, just, just below my belt. And uh, I'd been hearing about this venereal disease, and one of these old boys from Calvary, that had been reputed that he'd caught some kind of venereal disease. And I just old enough to think that you could catch one by shaking hands or, or sneezing. I didn't know how you got those kind of things, but when this breaking out started on my belly there, I thought, well, my God, I've caught uh, I've caught something. And so each morning, the doctor would come by. I'd raise my belt up a little higher, my, my, my pants a little higher, until I got them up just below my breasts because I was trying to hide this breaking out. I knew that's what I had. Well, the doctor finally saw that my pants wasn't fitting me just right, so he pulled them down, and uh, when he saw my breaking out, he said, Boy, you've got the hives. You're not eating right. Well, I felt so good to him telling me I had the hives instead of a venereal disease. I didn't mind it, but then I knew then what was causing this this rich living on his chocolate candy. gave me the hives, so I did then start to eating some of that red meat and stuffing it down with bread, of course. Finally, the jamboree is over, and it's come time to leave, and we were going to... Uh, the whole contingent of us was going over to Paris and have our headquarters in Paris and then visit around in the battlefields because that was right after the war and they hadn't even gun to clean up the battlefields. And I'll talk about it as we go, but the day that we uh, broke camp, well, there was uh, Fred and... and and uh, with our little group, in Fred garden, and he and I, we had our stuff stacked out in front of the tent, getting ready for the truck to come by and pick up our little sea bags and take them off what little our belongings there were. And we'd uh, all gathered up a few souvenirs, you know. And, and Fred and I got bored and got to fuss with each other. And, and so we, uh, uh, I grabbed his bag and throwed it up in there and jerked the strap off of it, and he kicked mine around. and It's just a family feud there, but it got reported. Our scoutmaster turned us in uh, Mr. James E. West. He was uh, the Chief scout Executive and he, is, he was over there. We never get to see him very often but Mr. West was over there of course and I remember he was a real fine man and but he was crippled a little bit in one foot. But anyway, Fred and I, we made up and we got on this little old train and went down to uh, I think it was Dover. Went to Dover on it and we were going across to Saint-Nazaire France and on a boat and then we were going to catch a train and, and go on down to Paris that, that that night and that's where we was going to be our headquarters while we uh, visited around in different groups, and uh, in, in, in France, we weren't going to all be in just one ward. Then we would we would going to break up into uh, either one or two troops or, a group or groups of boys, and and then we'd have a, a master over us to take us to these different places. Well, we got across the bay, and I mean across the channel, and and it was about two or three o'clock in the evening. we was in this little old French train going towards Paris, and uh, somebody. Uh, it was one of those that had a, a, an aisle down instead of these cross compartments because we was able to go from uh, one car to the other. So we, Fred and I got word that Mr. West wanted to see us. Well, there we were. We knew that, that we'd been reported for this little battle we'd had that morning, so we went down, and that's where I got to meet Mr. James E. West, and we explained to him that we was just uh, horsing around and wasn't mad at each other, and so he told us that, that, um, that to be a little nicer than that from then on. But uh, it seemed that our scoutmaster was a little inclined to, to want to pour it on us rather than and, and, uh, protect his boys that were from North Carolina. But anyway, we got to meet Mr. West, and it is worth uh, the scolding to get to meet him. <laughs> It might have been that we stopped in in uh, uh, Calais or France, but it might not have been St. Nazaire, but it's right across from Dover. I forget now just exactly where we, where we landed, because we may have sailed from St. Nazaire when we come back home, and that was down in the southern part of France on the Channel. When we got to Paris, the group that I was with was in charge uh, uh, by Dr. Reed. He was an army doctor, and he'd been uh, he'd doctored cover, too. But he was a regular army man and been over there during the war, but he's a real, real fine man. We all loved him. And so they billeted us in some little uh, different places around over Paris. And our group was, I don't know how many men, maybe 20 or 40, but we were billeted in a, uh, an old French school uh, uh, on the Rue de la Pompe, which was about, I would say, six or eight blocks from the, the uh, Arc de Tromp, the Etoile, and right across the street, from our uh, school, which was, I guess, it was just two or three stories high, because we we uh, lived upon the second floor. But we could look across the street, and there was old Marshal Joff's home, the old fat, the Marshal Joff, who was the hero of the Battle of the Morn, and uh, he had a, an, an automobile that he had to crank each morning, and he'd get out, he'd get out, and we got to see him on several occasions because he'd come home in the evening and then he'd get out and crank up his automobile. He didn't have a chauffeur; he did his own driving. But that's where we were located. was on the Rue de la Pompe and uh, and right across the street from where Marshal Joff lived. Uh, almost immediately after we got to Paris, <coughs> there's two boys in our group uh, that was in this school, broke out with a scarlet fever. Uh, Tina, it was, it was a mild case, but anyway, uh, that didn't, uh, they just kept us quarantined from the from the rest of the boy scouts of America. They didn't keep us quarantined, the Frenchmen. So they took these two boys that had a scarlet fever over to a hospital somewhere and, and left them there. And then we had to free run to Paris. We just couldn't associate with the other, other American boys anymore. And uh, so we had a, a trip uh, out to the battlefields and to see Soissons and Reims. They called it Ronce. And then we had a lot of fun just uh, roaming around in Paris there. One of the <clears throat> trips we took, and, and uh, Major Reed went with us, uh, we went in a train and went out to Soissons and, and Rontz. We made that trip all in one day. And I remember when we got out to Soissons, well uh, the old camouflage and stuff was still hanging on the trees along there, and we got to go out to where the flat cars were still standing in the forest there where the where the armistice was signed. They hadn't been moved. That, that was is two years later. And they hadn't been moved. And I took pictures of the whether the the cars that were, the armistice was signed in though were not there, but just the flat cars that hauled uh, the troops out there to be uh, present, and Soissons was a big city, but then no one lived there, None, nobody had gotten back yet. It just had a whole bunch of old cats running around, and and uh, it was a uh, it was devastated. And then we went out to, to Reims, they called it Reims, and we got to go down through the, the champagne cellars there. Now that, of course, Soissons and Reims were the, were the two big cities. That, uh, one of the sectors never did fall to the, to the Germans. And so the devastation took place just by the, by the uh, guns being fired on them. But we went over to Reims and we got to go through the cathedral there. And we went down into a wine cellar. But the thing that fascinated us most was were the battlefields. And uh, we got to go out on the battlefield, and some of the, uh, the machine guns were still in place there, and we find a uh, machine gun belts with the bullets still in them, and a hand-grenade pin had been pulled. And- uh, every day, uh, some of the Americans and uh, uh, tourists over there were being killed in the battlefield by going out and, and picking up some of these things that still had uh, explosives on them, like hand grenades. Well, they cautioned us not to do it, but uh, none of us happened to get killed. But I damn sure gathered up a bunch of bullets that were from over there and brought them home and hand grenade pins and, and Lord knows what all we we uh, put together. And so they still had a, an old bank or two out in the no-man's land. So it, the battle was just like when uh, they walked off and left everything and when the, when the whistle blowed, it was over and they didn't take anything home. But, but we were gathering up as much as we could. And that afternoon, going home or, uh, on the train, well, uh, the boys were all ex- exchanging or showing what they got in the West souvenirs, which we shouldn't have gotten at all, but Dr. Reed was there watching us all and he knew we was American boys and, so, uh, and we knew he had been over there during the war. And he sat there and let us show what all we had. And like I said, I had some hand grenade pins that uh, didn't go off when I I picked them up anyhow. And then some bullets from machine gun bullets and and, uh, just uh, various things. And all the boys had something. And when we got through, uh, uh, we noticed that Major Reed hadn't said anything. And uh, we asked him, said, Major, what did you get in the way of souvenirs? And without saying anything at all, he took out a little uh, memo book that he had. And he opened it up in the middle of it, and there was a pressed poppy. And that told his whole story. He had picked up a poppy in Flanders Fields and brought it home as his souvenir. He really brought the soul of the Allied armies home with him. Of course, while we were in Paris and couldn't get out too far, and some of the other kids went off up to Antwerp to, to see part of the Olympic Games that year. But Harm and our group and Fred dressed the rest of us, we were, we were confined to Paris except these little trips out into the battlefield. And So we got to see Napoleon's tomb, and we went through the Notre Dame Cathedral, and... And we got to see the place de la Concorde, and we went through the the uh French uh, art gallery and we went up to the top of the of the uh, uh Arc de Trompe. I brought some souvenirs back from there and still have them and Then we went down to, through the building the Trocadero I believe that was uh, housed the the things that Napoleon had stolen from some of these other countries, and the French still had them. I imagine the Germans stole them once or twice since then, but the Trocadero we went through. And then uh, we were shopping. In those days, the rage was was uh, uh, steel beads. And these shops up and down the the, the Champs Elysees, I think they called it the street anyway. The one that runs the place to La Concorde, where they had the guillotine during the French Revolution, all the way back to the to the Arc de Trump, they had shops all along there. So we'd go into those shops, and and we didn't have any money much, but we spent what little we had on these French beads. I brought uh, a necklace or two, I bought a necklace for my girlfriend. Uh, which I was gonna uh, dove back, and I was going to see when I got back. She lived to Dripping Springs, so I got her a necklace. And I got Mama some steel beads. I believe a purse, and all of them I had to buy them all a, a present. I had a, a, ba- a, a whole suitcase full of presents that I had to bring my kin folks, and also something back to these people that put up some money for me to go over there. But anyway, we run out of money, and as I told you, Harms Daddy was in the cotton business, and he had an office in in uh, Liverpool and one in Geneva. So we sitting up on our bed there one day, wondering how we was gonna. Uh, what we was going to do with our time since we had run out of money, and Harm conceived the idea that uh, he didn't know where his daddy was in Europe, but he was visiting, and he thought maybe that he knew the offices that knew that uh, Mr. Reed was in in, in Europe. So Hiram went down to the telegraph station and he wired the Reed office in general for a hundred dollars and signed his daddy's name to it. Well, we didn't have any idea that they'd go for that, but it wasn't an hour till we had a hundred dollars back to that office there, in old Hiram. He cashed it, and we had $100 to go on. That was more money than we had to start with. So the uh, first thing we did was to go down and, and rent some horses down right the, where the uh, Eiffel Tower is. Down in, There's a park down in there, and they had some stables or something, but we rented three horses. Harm had one, and, and Fred had one, and I had one, and Harm paid for them. It didn't cost us about $5 to ride for an hour or two. But we went riding with those, and, and then uh, we went up to the top of the Eiffel Tower. And I remember that uh, the, one of the biggest thrills I got when we got to the top of it, to where the elevator went, it it comes up, and and when you walk out from the, from the elevator to the top, you can see all the way to the ground through a hole there. Well, it I thought I was going to fall through that little hole. It wasn't about an inch wide, but I thought I was going to fall through it. And I've always been, been susceptible to some kind of uh, the heights. It, it bothered me. Well, we also went uh, along the the shops, Along the Seine River, there, close to the Notre Dame Cathedral, they had all kinds of shops, little bookshops and things, and, and uh, they had the war medals. You could buy uh, a Legion of Honor, French Legion of Honor, there's authentic for 75 cents, buy a Croix de Guerre for 15 cents. And uh, these soldiers, uh, they pawned them when they run out of money after the war, they didn't have anywhere to live, so they were there, the, these shops were loaded with those authentic medals. You could buy a Distinguished Service Cross. But they were manufactured, they were they were not the ones that'd been given to the soldiers, but you could buy those for a dollar. So I loaded up on on war metal. I got the uh, clot gears, several of those and some Belgian medals, and medal uh, metal military and and uh, uh the Legion of Honor and, and I I brought those home and souvenirs and kept them for a number of years till my younger son, little Polk, he started to go into school, and he, he knew his daddy had these heads somewhere, so he got a hold of them and passed them out to all the kids in school. And I lost my war souvenirs by my son being so generous to his uh, schoolmates over at Peace school. We visited the Palace of Versailles. We went through the Louvre Museum. Then the- Good things must come to an end, and then the time come to go home. The other boys we gathered down at Saint Nazaire, France. That was at the head of, I think, the Louvre River. Louvre River. But we were going to boat an old transport, another army transport called the Princess Matoka. And when we got down there, ready to get on that Princess Matoka, we found out that the cargo of uh, that boat was going to be these uh, uh, dead uh, men and and coffins that they were bringing back from france then the american soldiers that had been killed over there were being returned to the united states for proper burial and they had just uh... uh literally thousands of these coffins down there and they were loading them on the, this ship that we were going to ride back to the united states well uh... we did it in that's all we had to get them back but we rode back with a ship of of, of 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 dead soldiers there wasn't anything of particular note that i remember happened on the way home except all of us needed a haircut and they insisted on us getting it. And so we got over R.A. Hatcher down and give him one of our own uh, choosing. And he looked like he'd been snipped four or five places in the wrong place when he got home. He didn't have a fair good haircut. But then we got home. Well, uh, Everybody wanted to get back to their station as quick as they could. And we uh, had a big banquet one night in the ballroom of the Commodore Hotel in New York. And I have a picture taken at that time. And so the, uh, they, when they got through with the banquet, what they did was to take all the tables and things out and put folding cots in the ballroom there and, and uh, let the boys stay there. That's where we where we had a bit. Of, I guess we had 300 of us sleeping in that ballroom and some of them sleeping up around the balcony on the, on the other side. Well, I know that... Uh, we were we were downstairs, and the next morning we were laying on our cots, Harm and I and one of the other boys, and, and uh, we noticed some of the decorations that were around the balcony up there, like flags and things that they'd put for the banquet. We noticed one of them being pulled over the, the balustrade up there. And so we jumped up and tear off up there, and one of these little scouts was trying to get him a, a souvenir to take home, and he was laying on the floor, and he was pulling this flag up over the over there thinking somebody wouldn't see him but uh, we cautioned him that it was wrong to do that sort of thing of course we knew it was wrong because we'd been doing it all along I still have the souvenirs that I brought back in 1920 I forgot to mention that we did a, a lot of trade. I'd taken some Indian airheads over to trade with these other boys over the world for souvenirs that they were going to bring. I knew all of them were going to do that. And I got a hippopotamus tooth from, and some in, some beads from the natives of South Africa. And I've got a Dutch Boy Scout badge. And I've got one of our little signal flags that we used in the, in the contest. And, and uh, besides all these medals and things that I brought back. But I have those and, and I have them mounted at home. And I intend someday perhaps to give those to the Boy Scouts because they're things that, that would mean more to them than it would to my own immediate family.